I would like to now invite Gustavo Campos to come and read today's scripture. He will be reading in Espanol. Of course, it will be printed there in your bulletin. Uh, Gustavo, please come. Y aconteció como ocho días después de estas palabras que tomó a Pedro y a Juan y a Jacobo y subió al monte a orar. Y entre tanto que oraba, la apariencia de su rostro se hizo otra y su vestido blanco y resplandeciente. Y aquí dos varones que hablaban con él, los cuales eran Moisés y Elías, que aparecieron en majestad y hablaban de su salida, la cual había de cumplir en Jerusalén. Y Pedro y los que estaban con él estaban cargados de sueño, y como despertaron, vieron su majestad y aquellos dos varones que estaban con él. Y aconteció que apartándose ellos de él, Pedro dice a Jesús, Maestro, vienes que nos quedemos aquí y hagamos tres pabellones, uno para ti, y uno para Moisés, y uno para Elías, no sabiendo lo que se decía. Y estando él hablando esto, vino una nube que los cubrió, y tuvieron temor entrando ellos en la nube. Y vino una voz de la nube que decía, Este es mi Hijo amado, a él oíd. Y pasada aquella voz, Jesús fue hallado solo, y ellos callaron, y por aquellos días no dijeron nada a nadie de lo que habían visto. The word of the Lord. Uh, if you were to pick um, some of the strangest and most perplexing passages in the Bible, um, many would include the transfiguration of Jesus, which is what we just heard read from Luke 9. Uh, it's an odd passage. Uh, if you've been uh, reading or following along with our reading plan, which again, I would highly recommend you just jumping into um, if you haven't already uh, been part of it. Um, what's interesting about the story, about the transfiguration, is that it's bookended by things that we are used to hearing about Jesus. So, but just before Jesus is teaching some things, just after Jesus is healing people, these are the kinds of things we expect to think about and hear about with Jesus. And right in between is this really interesting event known as the Transfiguration. And so it's important to consider what exactly is this, this event? What is supposed to be taking place? What is being communicated to us? Now, if you've been with us, uh, we've been in a series where we, that we've called Walking with Jesus. And the goal of the series has really been to seek to know Jesus more. Uh, we, throughout the series, have not been that concerned about getting to know more about him. The goal, though, has really, to be, has really uh, been to get to know him better. And I think that we can get to know him actually quite spectacularly, even in this very obscure passage. <clears throat> Now, again, just a shameless plug for our Tuesday night class. Uh, we're actually going to begin addressing how you handle really difficult passages like this, so I'd encourage you to come. Um, but let's take a look at how we can go about understanding what's going on here in this passage, because this seemingly perplexing passage uh, is actually far less perplexing when we consider the Old Testament imagery that's woven, interwoven into this narrative and into this event. Uh, the transfiguration of Jesus is really a stunning revelation of who Jesus is and how he relates to the totality of what's described in Scripture and how unlike Jesus is compared to, uh, how different Jesus is, rather, to all other religious leaders or religious founders. He cannot compare This passage in Luke 9 shows us, I pray that we all see him in this way today. 
And here's the main difference. Here's what makes Jesus distinct. It's really one word. And that word is glory. The glory of Jesus is what makes Jesus completely different than all else, all others. The glory that is seen by Peter, James, and John here gives us an unprecedented insight into Jesus. So let's get to know him a little bit better in this way here on this mountain described in Luke 9. Uh, Let's do that by considering several things. Let's take a look at the glory that's in the past, uh, the glory that's on this mountain, and then the glory that's to come. So first, the glory in the past. Now, as I said, this passage um, really only makes sense to the extent that we properly understand how it's placed within Israel's history. The Old Testament allusions in Luke 9 frame the great depths of what we have here, uh, specifically several, several things that we see. Let me point them out to you. First, we do see these descriptions of glory. We'll try to understand what that means in a minute. Uh, We also see faces that change as a result of that glory. Uh, We have a mountain. Uh, We have two important Old Testament figures here in Moses and Elijah. And then, of course, we have a cloud that's here on the mountain, all of which is ultimately pointing to uh, to a presentation of God's glory, a presentation that we see throughout the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, uh, the glory of God, rather, in the Old Testament is a huge Old Testament theme. Um, And the way in which it was ultimately the way in which people experienced the glory of God, uh, it was important to understand how that happened in order to understand what's happening here. Let me explain to you what I mean. All right, so first, for example, this passage is full of descriptions that connected Moses' experience of the glory of God um, to this, to here. Right? We see it all throughout Luke 9. For Moses and Israel, the glory of God was evidenced in several ways that are reflected here in our passage. First, they experienced the glory of God and the presence of God through a cloud. Now, if you know some of Israel's Old Testament history, you know uh, maybe some things are coming to mind. Time and time again, we saw a cloud, especially uh, during the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 13, they were freed from their bondage in Israel. And what led them on their journey? It was a cloud. It was this God's glorious presence that as they looked at it could only be described as this bright cloud. Uh, At night, it was so bright, the only way they could describe this glorious presence was to describe it as a pillar of fire. In Exodus 19, when Israel ends up at Mount Sinai, the place where they would receive uh, the Ten Commandments, God comes to the mountain to talk with Moses, and he speaks through a cloud. It says that when God talks to Moses, he did so through thunder at the mountain. When the presence and the glory of God were present at the mountain, the mountain rumbled and it became so palpable, this glory, that if you touched the mountain, you would die. Later on in Exodus 33, again on a mountain, God speaks to Moses again through this glory cloud. But what's interesting about that passage in Exodus 33 is that in verse 11, It's described as a face-to-face conversation between Moses and God. And yet Moses knew at that moment he was not literally having a face-to-face conversation with God because he knew he was speaking through some kind of veiled medium through the cloud. And later on in the passage, Moses begs God by saying, please show me your glory. 
And God's response to that request is simply this. Let me just read this for you. This is found in um, verse 20 through 23 of Exodus 33. But God says this, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. All right, whatever this cloud was, whatever this glory was, it was so powerful and all-consuming that if Moses experienced the fullness of that glory, it would have killed him. And then finally, in Exodus 34, after seeing, after seeing this veiled glimpse of God's glory, Moses comes off the mountain and it, his whole appearance had changed. His face shone so brightly that the people were afraid of him. Do you see all the different bits of imagery from the Old Testament now woven here into Luke 9? It is deeply rooted in the experience of Israel's history. So if that's the case, right? So if all that's taking place, then what exactly is happening in Luke 9? What is being communicated to us through this transfiguration? Well, let's now shift from the glory of the past to the glory on this mountain Um, What we see on this mountain, uh, actually, as I've said, might be some of the most telling uh, events concerning who Jesus is. Because what happens on this mountain is Jesus essentially goes from being what some might assume him to be, this good, moral man who is teaching and healing people, to now shifting to being something unlike anyone has ever seen. Because on this mountain... Something takes place that has never taken place on other mountains. Let me explain to you what I mean. I mean, we do see here on this pas- in this passage, we do see a cloud descend and envelop this mountain, but there's something different that's occurred. Now, on this mountain, the radiance and the glory of God that was once veiled by a cloud is now radiating from Jesus himself. Do you see that significant difference? The glory once existed in a cloud. Now this glory is radiating from Jesus. Luke describes it uh, as though it looked like lightning. The Gospel of of Matthew, uh, Matthew describes it as though Jesus shone like the sun. See, on this mountain, for a moment, Peter and John and James are given a glimpse of who Jesus is. And it's not just some rabbi that stands before him. Rather, it's the one from whom God's glory radiates. Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, writes this about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when I read that, that is is quite a statement there about who Jesus is in relation to the glory of God. Because what we're seeing is that manifest here in Luke 9 on this mountain. And that statement, the exact imprint, the, uh, the original Greek word could literally be translated that he is the exact expression of the substance. Meaning that Jesus by nature is the very substance of God. Jesus is God's glory in human form. Colossians 2 
says that for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is what Jesus meant in John 14 when he says that those who have seen me have seen the Father. In some ways, Jesus is the glory cloud at Mount Sinai. In some ways, Jesus, the same glory that led the people of Israel out of bondage, the glory that shook the mountain, the glory that would have killed Moses if he had truly seen it and not been tucked away safely in the cleft of the rock, that glory is Jesus in bodily form. And here on this mountain in Luke 9, that veil is partially pulled back so that Peter, James, and John, and ultimately us today, it's pulled back that we might see Jesus for who he truly is, the glory of God. Now, the other thing that's interesting here about this passage uh, is the presence of Moses and Elijah. Now, why are they, of all people, why are they present here? Well, commentators note that Moses and Elijah, in the minds of uh, the people of Israel, they would have represented both the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, would have been the one who gave Israel the law, and Elijah uh, would have been a significant prophet within Israel. Uh, And the law and the prophets were a way of always describing Scripture. It was always a way of describing the Word of God. And the reason why this matters is because for Israel, they were accustomed to teachers and rabbis and high priests who would come and represent the law and the prophets. They were used to leaders coming who were sent by God. The difference, though, is that all the leaders that had come up until that point, they came and they went. And none of the leaders and rabbis were talked about in these kinds of terms. None of them were the exact expression of the substance of God. The presence of Moses and Elijah was an unambiguous claim that Jesus is not like any other leader. And I hope that we see the radical implications of that kind of claim. This is significant for Peter, James, and John who are standing on the mountain, but it's also very significant for us as well. Because Jesus is not like any other religious leader who has come before or who has come after him. He is uniquely distinct against all others, and any attempt to classify Jesus with other teachers or other prophets or other exemplars is fundamentally inconsistent with what the Bible says about him or what he even claimed about himself. I mean, if Jesus is the glory of God, a glory that would kill us if we experienced it fully, how does that then impact how we view him and how we approach him? I mean, I think that's a significant question. How do you, when you think about Jesus, how do you think about him? Because attempting to classify him with others, as we've said, is a rejection of his claim, but also a flippancy or an apathy about who Jesus is, is also a deep rejection of his claim. And these kinds of approaches make plain to us that we completely lack vision for who he truly is. Because when we see him, we really ought to be, when we truly see him, we ought to be like the Apostle John, for example. In Revelation 1, where when Jesus came to him in glory, and Jesus' face shone like the sun, it says in Revelation 1, 
If you know the story, John was so overcome by being in the presence of Jesus that it says he fell down like a dead man. Or maybe another example would be the way that Isaiah uh, responds when he's in the presence of God. In Isaiah 6, there's a well-known vision that Isaiah has in which the majesty and the glory of God are shown to Isaiah. And when God brings him into his glory and he sees God for who he is, do you know what his reaction is? The only thing that he can say is, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I am among people of unclean lips. His first reaction to being in the presence of God is this visceral feeling and experience of being unworthy to be in that presence for he knew it would be his demise to be in the presence of such perfection. And experiencing the presence and the glory of God ought to make plain to us the deep depths of our sin. And so again, I wonder, how do you see him? And do you experience being in his presence in this way? And I know uh, in our culture, we do tend to reject this idea of being unworthy, or even the concept of personal sin that in some way alienates us from God. Plus, I also recognize that even if one does believe in God, the idea that we should fear God is a bit of a foreign concept. Um, And I think the reason that that's the case is because too often we actually don't take our sin nearly as seriously as we should. We don't take the brokenness that exists in us as seriously as we should. And here's one of the reasons why I think that happens. I think one of the reasons why we don't take it seriously enough is because usually when we look at our sin, we compare our sin to the sins of others. And when we do that, it's very easy to feel as though we're doing all right, especially in comparison to maybe the worst kinds of people that we could think of. And when we compare ourselves to others, it's very easy to feel as though we're doing okay. But what would happen if you were to take yourself and compare it not to others, but rather compare it to this perfectly holy and righteous God? The one that even the uh, prophet Isaiah fell down before in fear and lament over his sin. I mean, in other words, yeah, when I look at other people, it's easy for me to look at them and think, yeah, they deserve to be judged by God for whatever they might be a part of. But I'm not nearly as bad as them. But the truth is, we are far closer in proximity to even the worst people than we are in proximity when we compare ourselves to a perfectly holy and righteous God. Because when we are in the presence of perfection, we cannot help but experience our palpable imperfections. This is an example of a, a very um, tame example. But several years ago, I was in the gym lifting weights, as I do this time of year because we're post-holidays, and so um, that's what happens. But I'm in the gym, and I'm doing curls, right? If you're unfamiliar with weights, this is, these are the curls, okay? And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'd had a good, pretty good, good uh, workout that morning, feeling pretty good. But on that day, I remember that I went to go and put down these dumbbells. Um, But before I was able to put them down, I had another guy kind of interrupt me because he wanted them uh, so that he could use them for himself. So I hand them to him, he takes them, and he immediately starts doing the same exercise. He starts doing these curls. Um, And after doing just a couple, he very quickly realizes that they're too heavy for him. 
And so he puts them down to go grab lighter ones, all of which is happening in like 15 seconds. Now, if you could imagine how that makes me feel, I'm like, oh yeah, I, in comparison, I feel really great given that I was just curling the very things that this guy couldn't handle, feeling good about myself. But as this was all happening, right? So he starts, I'm seeing this out of my peripheral vision. I'm going over to a bench um, <clears throat> to do some more uh, exercises. And there was another guy that had been over there also doing curls. And the, the weights that he'd been using, he'd put down on the floor and he walked away and left them there. Uh, side note, that's so annoying. Uh, <laughs> Put your dumbbells back, geez. Um, but so now they're in my way, okay? And I need to now move these out of the way so I can continue. I go to pick them up, and they're so heavy, I can't even pick them up off the ground. Now, you can imagine how I feel now, right? This is all happening in like 60 seconds. I go from feeling really good about myself in comparison to one guy to immediately feeling emasculated by the fact that I could not even touch what this guy had just been doing out of my peripheral vision, all of which happened very, very quickly. Roller coaster of emotions. But why? Why did I have such a roller coaster of emotions over the course of these 60 seconds? Well, it's because when we are in the presence of real strength, we realize our weakness. When we're in the presence of true perfection, we realize our imperfection. When we're in the presence of true purity, we realize all of our impurities. And God, being perfectly strong, perfectly pure, perfectly righteous, even beyond what we can possibly comprehend, when we are in that presence, the result should be, ought to be, a complete awareness of our insufficiencies, of our failures. And it seems to me that the only response can be like Isaiah, woe is me. I cannot compare. Now, as a side note, it's also at least just worth noting that the results of comparing ourselves to others will produce ultimately two things, neither of which are going to be good for us. I mean, on the one hand, if we compare ourselves to others and we think less of others, give it some time and you will become delusional and self-righteous in your life. It will happen. Even to the point that you'll become so obnoxious that people don't even want to be around you because they can't be around you without feeling judged. On the other hand, if we, com if we compare ourselves to others and we think too much of others, thinking that everyone is better than us, we become despondent and even depressed because we know we'll never be as good as them. Comparing ourselves to others will never serve you well. However, when God is our standard and we realize that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us, we no longer think of ourselves as less than or more than others, but we realize that we are all fallen. None of us live up to that ultimate perfection. And what that should do is at least create a posture of humility and compassion and empathy for even those that we deem as being far worse than ourselves, because none of us ultimately live up. We all have the problem of falling short, and we all have the problem that because of our imperfections, we will be crushed by the glory of God, should we ever be in its presence. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of the weight of glory. I think that's appropriate language, that God's glory is so weighty that if we were to ever experience it, it would crush us for our strength would fail under it. 
So, we could end there, and that could feel really depressing, and we could walk out wishing it were not so. But there's something else here in this passage. Because there actually is a way in which we are able to stand in the glory of God and not have it crush us. And if there's something here in this passage that takes the glory that we experience from us having to say, woe is me, and turning it into what we sing at the end of our service every week, praise God from whom all blessings flow. What takes us from woe is me to praise? Well, that is the glory to come. Look at verse 30 and 31. It says that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were speaking of his, quote, departure. What does that mean? Well, soon after this event, Luke begins to describe Jesus as setting his face to Jerusalem. All right, this begins happening immediately in chapter 9. Now, that, that statement, setting his face, was a way of saying that Jesus was orientating his vision on the mission that he came to accomplish in Jerusalem, much like an archer or a sharpshooter fixes their eyes on their target, Jesus fixes his eyes on Jerusalem, which would be the place of his coming death. Right? This departure is speaking of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's, it's the work he came to do. And then also look at verse 35. This is very interesting. Out of the cloud comes a voice of the Father saying... This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now, does that sound familiar at all to you? If you know these narratives, the other time, the only other time that we heard the father speak those words was at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus was the mark of Jesus' ministry where he would begin proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, which was an important part of his ministry. But now, as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, the Father speaks again. And the transfiguration gives us a glimpse of this incomparable glory of Jesus while also showing us the way in which Jesus uses his glory. Hear me when I say this, that Jesus used his glory by laying down that glory in order that on the cross he might be crushed by that glory. I mean, this is what we are seeing here. The glorious Jesus is about to lay it all down so that he might go to the cross, take our sin and imperfections, the very sin that ought to cause us to cry out, woe is me, Jesus takes it on the cross. And the glory that would have killed Moses, the glory that would crush us as a result of our sin does not crush us, it crushes Jesus instead. So that when we finally cease with silly and asinine attempts at comparing ourselves with others, and we realize the extent to which we horrendously fall short of God's glory, and then as a result, hope and trust in Christ, we find security in him. And we know that security is available because the cross is not the final word. Jesus, though he would lay his life down, of course, he would rise again. And when he rises again, he now takes up again that glory that he had once laid down so that now he rules 
and he reigns in glorious splendor and welcomes us now into that glory so that now we no longer have this woeful lament before God, but this joy-filled praise. I mean, do you see the kind of hope and security that is available? That if you were in the presence of God, I wonder, would you be crushed by it or would you stand secure? knowing that someone has taken the sin that made it impossible for you to stand in that glory. If you're not confident in that, know that it's available as we put our hope and our trust in Jesus. Let me close with these words from Colossians 3. It's a stunning reminder of what we have in Christ. I'd encourage you just to do this. Would you do this with me? I don't don't usually make people do this, but would you close your eyes just for a second and just hear these words as I read them? given everything we've just said, hear these words from Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to appear with Christ in glory because of what he has done. Jesus is our safety. He is our cleft in the rock. He is the cloud, so to speak. And we have been drawn in as a a result of what he has accomplished so that now we are hidden and secure in him. So that now when we are in your presence, we are not crushed under its weight, but rather we are safe and secure in the presence of our Savior. Would you help us to remember these things, that though we ought to be left with loathful lament, we are instead given joyous praise, that songs might come from our lips for what Jesus has done. Would this be an encouragement to us as we reflect on and see his glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.